Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie got a chance to catch up with ARM CEO Renee Haas. The pair spoke about the company's future and the generative AI revolution and how Haas's role has changed since ARM's public listing. Renee, thank you so much for your time. Like, I look back on this year, looking from the outside in at ARM, and it seems like this is an historic year for ARM. And you've navigated many different moments in this story, being previously at NVIDIA, and then, of course, at ARM when it was privately held, and then, of course, the IPO. This is an historic year for ARM. How do you look back on this year? Uh, for the company, an amazing year, right? Uh, we had the NVIDIA transaction, which ended in 2022. Mm-hmm. We thought we were going to go public in 2022. The markets thought otherwise. Uh, so 2023 ended up being the year. Uh, and just a phenomenal you know, achievement. We are so proud of the, of the history of the company. And I think the IPO represents not only a fantastic milestone for the employees of today, but all the employees that, that got us here. So uh, a truly momentous year, both for the company uh, for myself personally, I also became a grandfather uh, two months prior to the IPO to wow. the day. So September 14th was the IPO. Uh, my granddaughter was born on July 14th. So it made for it's made for quite a, quite a year. Well, congratulations! Yeah, very very big deal on a, a yeah. uh, very big year indeed on a personal level, and of course for the company and your and your role here. How do you think it's changed then your role as CEO going from privately held to publicly listed arm? How has it changed your role? We've been public now uh, for few months. Yeah. Uh, so I would say I feel like the eyes are upon me a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, than they were prior. But on the other hand, I, I try to think about it in terms of um, the future of ARM is really not measured in what we are today. It's what we're going to be in, in a few years. I spend most of my time thinking about where ARM is going to be three years from now, five years from now. So on one level, yes, it's changed because the eyes are on us. We're a public company. We have to meet our expectations. We have to do exactly what we say we're going to do. But on the other hand, I'd like to think maybe not so much change because I'm thinking about five years away, just like I was before the IPO, mm-hmm. same way I'm thinking about it today. And how do you balance the demands of investors in the company now, those new investors and the legacy investors? And of course, Masayoshi's son, SoftBank, being, being the big force, gravitational force. How do you, how do you balance those, those demands? So ARM is really a company that is hard to look at quarter to quarter because the the technology we're working on today is really technology that's going to end up in products three years from now, four years from now. So while the financial results are important, Mm. they're really the results of strategies we put in place a number of years ago, which were quite successful. This is when we created our Neoverse product line for the servers. We created our automotive product lines. And you're seeing those things really come to bear. So for us, what we try to do is just make sure that the investors understand that while the, the near-term results of here are important, it's really also important to really think about the long-term and where we're going directionally. Do you think there's still a process of learning then from and for investors to kind of catch up with that view that you're projecting out? They're looking at the near-term, quarter by quarter, and you're looking out ahead. You, you want to close that gap? Yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, Arm was a public company in 2016, so mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not new to the markets, but that was a long time ago. That was seven years, and we uh, were not a public company. We didn't talk to investors, so 
there is a bit of re-education about who ARM is, how our business works, and our business has changed a, a bit than we were in, in 2016. Uh, our royalties are a much larger percentage of our business. We're much more diversified. We're in broader markets. So it's continuously sort of educating the investors about who we are, where we're going, and, and what's changed since they last knew us. And look, ARM was set up in the 1990s. You've been the building blocks of our digital globe, digital world, digital economy since then. And now we're at this point where we're focused on generative AI, and that is reshaping this digital ecosystem that we, that we now live in or that we will be living on. What role do you see ARM playing in that transformed digital space in the years ahead? Yeah, so ARM in the 30 plus years has just been foundational to computing in a way that no other computer architecture before it, and I dare say after it, uh, has been. 70% uh, of the world's population touches ARM today in some way. Uh, we were well known for uh, smartphones, uh, and before that, non-smartphones, feature phones, if you mm -hmm. will. The ARM of today is, is not only much more diversified around, as I mentioned before, data centers, automotive, IoT, but now as AI and AI workloads are finding their way into every single application, whether it's your thermostat or your data center, ARM will be there. So I think for us in the upcoming years and decades, ARM will be foundational to everything going on with AI. So you can assure investors that you will remain, you're essential right now to this digital world that we live in. You will be essential in that generative AI reshaped world in the years ahead. You will continue to play that essential role. You can't world. run AI without ARM. Mm. It's foundational. Mm. And AI is going to find its way into every single electronics device that we use. Again, whether it's the smallest device in your home or the largest data center that sits out in the uh, out in the wild. You used to work at Nvidia, of course. Nvidia have backed ARM, the IPO. Jensen Huang, the the CEO, has been very optimistic and supportive of ARM. Have you been surprised at how successful Nvidia have been at carving out that niche around generative AI, GPUs, and and chips? Has that has that come as a surprise, or did you see it coming? Uh, nothing Jensen does uh, surprises me. Uh, he's been at this for a long time around accelerated computing. Mm -hmm. But the whole notion about accelerating computing is quite interesting because obviously you, you need some computer to accelerate. And uh, one of the things that we work very closely with NVIDIA is the idea of having the central computer being ARM and the accelerator being NVIDIA. One example of that is a new product that they announced called Grace Hopper. Uh, Grace, which uses up to 144 ARM CPUs inside the superchip, then uses an H100 uh, GPU as the accelerator. So. We actually work very closely with NVIDIA, and it's a very good example of, of in the most stringent of AI applications, they chose ARM as a compute partner to their GPU. Microsoft have also come out with Cobalt, which is a cloud-focused chip underpinned by ARM infrastructure. A lot of people saying this is very good news for ARM. It shows that you can continue to build out your market share in data centers. Can you give us a flavor of any other innovations, products that may be coming down the pipe that may continue to build out your market share in that space? We saw the start of this with uh, AWS, mm -hmm. uh, who announced their Graviton processors a number of years ago, and now they've announced Graviton 4, their fourth generation product, where they are integrating ARM CPUs to get an extremely power efficient uh, platform, 40% better than, uh, than the competition in terms of performance per watt. Those are the kind of reasons that companies like Microsoft with Cobalt, which is a terrific product, 128 ARM CPUs, into a custom SOC. The benefit that the OEMs get by doing their own silicon is not only around the 40% better uh, performance per watt, 
but also building out the entire data center. That is, they can customize the rack, they can customize the blade, they can customize the footprint. So I think the Microsoft announcement uh, and the AWS announcement are, are a couple that are great proof points. Uh, I'm pretty confident you'll see more of those. Every AI executive that I speak to, whether it's DeepMind or Cohere or Inflection or others, say the scramble for compute is front and center, along with the fight for talent. How do you see that fight for compute going forward? How does that evolve in the years ahead? Do we get to see more product coming onto the marketplace that's going to address some of that tightness in terms of the demand for compute? I think right now what we're seeing with these large language models, for example, mm. that are uh, very, very large in terms of their data capacity, they take lots of computer cycles to train, is why you're seeing such a demand for compute resources. And that's not just the accelerator, that's the core computer, aka what, what mm. ARM does. So I think that trend is going to just continue over the next number of years because as sophisticated as the models are today, whether you run ChatGPT or uh, coming up with Gemini or what Inflection AI is working on, they're terrific products, but they're still limited in terms of how quick they can learn, how quickly they can adapt. That needs more and more training, which means more and more compute, and then you have to run the inference, that is the actual use of those models, which requires even more compute. So I do think for the next number of years, we are going to see a increasing demand for more and more compute. Now, I think what's also going to drive is a high degree of need for power efficiency because these data centers require hundreds of watts, megawatts, up to the gigawatts of type of energy. We don't produce that much energy uh, as, as a planet. Uh, we are having limitations relative to fossil fuels, limitations to sustainable. So a rush to get to power efficiency around these compute models is going to be very, very significant. That's great for ARM because mm -hmm. the DNA of our company is around power efficiency. We were born building our first CPUs off of a battery. So for us, I think we're in a very, very good place to help with that uh, transition. What do you think it does for, for pricing going forward? Price is very elevated already around compute. Does that, does that inflation around prices, compute prices for generative AI, does that continue as a trend? Are we starting to peak in terms of pricing? Well, it's hard to say because mm -hmm. on one hand, what, what people will look at and say, well, the pricing is incredibly high. On the flip side, it's now delivering capability we've never seen before. And as that capability gets transitioned into real productivity gains, uh, for example, you know, for ARM, one of the things that we would love to see is how can we shrink the amount of time it takes to, to build our products. For us to design a product, for example, we spend more time verifying that the product we design is correct than actually designing it. That verification work can really benefit from large AI models. So one could argue, well, the pricing is kind of high, but if at the end it actually saves me a lot of time and cost and product development, it's not so high. So I think it'll work itself out over time. Well, you touch on something that's really interesting, which is obviously you're providing components, chips, designs, the blueprints that are going to fuel this AI revolution, but you're using AI in-house as well. And so I wonder, in terms of verification, you can envisage a role where AI helps with that process and cuts down the time. Talk to us about, about talent and the focus on engineering talent at ARM. Are you still able to attract that talent and retain that talent at this point? Yeah, so you know, back to the, the productivity gains. Yeah. You know, right, right now, it's very early stages. Uh, we're experimenting with it. Uh, one of the things that needs to happen for this to really be unleashed is privacy of data and integrity of data. Uh, we can't have our engineers innovating on models that all that data goes out to the World Wide Web and, and then the public can use it. So right now, 
we're limited a bit by the capability of the enterprise tools. But that, that will get sorted out over time, and then I think you see a, a big productivity gain. So then people say, well, gosh, isn't that going to eliminate jobs, mm -hmm. Renee, and you're going to have less and less verification engineers? Well, not really, because then maybe I conceive maybe 10 times more products, and I can develop more and more products that I can put in the marketplace because I can move engineers into different phases of work. So I think, generally speaking, when people talk about AI and productivity gains and moving jobs around, I think for our world, there's going to be no shortage of jobs. Then to your question, yeah. you know, can, we, can we find the talent? Uh, it's always challenging. Uh, we have a lot of people here in the UK, as for the majority of our people are in, in Cambridge. We have locations all across Europe. We have locations in the United States, uh, also in India and, and parts of Asia. Uh, the fight for talent for what we do is, is quite fierce. Uh, thankfully, uh, people like working at ARM. The company's doing well, so uh, we're able to retain our talent. But finding new talent is always a challenge. Are AI engineers better than human engineers, or could they be? <laughs> Uh, today, we, we were having a chat around this with, with a number of folks at lunch. We, one of the, the folks at lunch described them to uh, an intern. Hmm. In other words, the work is, is decent, but I need to check it. Uh, and that's, I think, where we are today. But I think over time, uh, they will become very, very good assistants. Okay. So we're still a ways away from that. You, you, you've talked about being in an R&D super cycle. Mm -hmm. How long does that super cycle continue? I think for where we are with AI, and AI to some level ha is not new. Uh, when you look at, at, on a website mm -hmm. and you do Google Translate, that's AI on, on some level. But what's happened, particularly with the chat G GPT moment, we've elevated the capability. And now what we see is a real, ch a real opportunity to get to your point about can artificial engineers be as good as real engineers? We're very early in, the, in, that, in that area. So I think, back to your question around the super cycle, I think we are in an uh, accelerated investment cycle where these models will get smarter, the data sets will get sharper, uh, and the outputs will get better. And I think we're very early uh, in that. Uh, one of the analogies I like to talk about is it reminds me a little bit around of the, uh, of the Internet of 1995, where different browsers, different portals were all coming out and the magic of, oh my gosh, I've got a, a GUI and now I can access information around the globe. If you look at the internet of 1995 to what the internet of 2023 is, obviously we've, we've, we've come uh, a long, long way. I feel like that's where we are with this uh, large language model sort of transition on, on AI. You went back to the early 90s. I want to go back to 2017. You diversified the business. You broke out these four different divisions, mm -hmm. IoT, cloud, infrastructure, autonomous vehicles. Why did you see that as necessary back in 2017? You were trying to diversify away from smartphones or at least mm -hmm. make sure you had a product mix. Yep. But why was it essential then? One of the things that we were seeing uh, at that time was the hallmarks of what was making our very successful in mobile phones high-performance software ecosystem power efficiency was becoming table stakes for these other markets. The cloud data center, as we talked about before, in terms of power efficiency, you just don't have all the energy required. Automobiles that were transitioning now to EVs or a digitized cockpit where your car starts to look like a computer. We were seeing, again, demands for lots of software, but also power efficiency. So we were very lucky in 2017. We were uh, privately held. So as a result, we could uh, make some investments into new products that were much more purpose-built for the end markets that we were competing in. So previous to 2017, 
we would design a mobile processor and then really attempt to squeeze it or peanut butter it, if you will, into the server space or into the automotive space or into different areas of IoT, it just wasn't sufficient. And we had a lot of questions early on. Well, why isn't, what's taking ARM so long to be successful in the servers? Uh, many different reasons contributed to that. But one of them was, candidly, we just didn't have the right products. And we were able to create Neoverse. We were able to add custom extensions, things like confidential compute that are necessary for building high-grade data centers. We could put those in the products. And now with Neoverse, we have a world-class competitive entry that you're seeing the benefits of it, whether it's the Microsoft Cobalt or, or AWS. We had to do that in 2017 mm. because uh, it was clear that these other markets were demanding it and the software ecosystem needed to be able to support it. What, what kind of revenue mix would you need to see to kind of declare a success in that diversification push? I'm going to declare some modicum of success now. Uh, we were over 60% revenue in smartphones, maybe even higher. Mm -hmm. Uh, prior to this change, uh, smartphones now, while a very large market for us, are about 40% uh, and declining. And our largest growth in terms of revenue are coming from these new markets, as I mentioned, cloud and, uh, and automotive. Is, which of those is most exciting to you? Cloud, automotive, which has the greatest prospect in terms of driving revenues into the business? They're quite different. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the cycles on automotive are much, much longer, mm -hmm. so it will take a longer uh, amount of time. But there's huge potential there just when you look at the massive shift that's taking place in, in automobiles. Combustion engines to EV, those require processors. Your car is becoming a computer, the IVI, the digital cockpit, that is all moving to something that runs on software, all good for ARM. And then these electronic control units, your power brakes, your power windows, those are all integrating into a common network that's all moving to ARM. So I'm so excited about where the automotive market can go. I do think the cloud data center is even potentially uh, more exciting from the perspective of when you layer in the AI component. Uh, we talked about all the growth that ARM has seen uh, in the cloud, but now as we're seeing the, the shift towards AI, a product like Grace Hopper, again, NVIDIA taking their GPU and our CPU and creating the world's best uh, super chip for AI, that wasn't you know, on the roadmap in 2017 when we started because we weren't thinking about the AI market. So I think for us, cloud could be a, a terrific opportunity. And what is the market share in cloud that you would be targeting in the years ahead? Do you have a number in mind, Rene? You know, we're in double digits now. Yeah. And I always like to say when, when you get to double digits in, in our space, you're now you're, you're in the party. Mm -hmm. uh, can we get to uh, over 50% over time? Uh, I think we can. Uh, I'm a very, very ambitious guy. Uh, I want to see ARM uh, do what we did in the data center and all the other markets. I think we have all the ingredients to do so. And what, what is the opportunity? What is the potential around autonomous driving? We move from L3, L4, L5 to autonomous. That is an opportunity for ARM as well. What is the potential growth to the top line from that? Uh, I think that, it, again, a little bit longer out in time, mm -hmm. but can be very, very significant. We have a lot of engagements today already around autonomous. Uh, where our ADAS share today already is 50% uh, and growing. Uh, we're 90% of IVI, which is a digital cockpit. Uh, so between IVI and ADAS, and particularly as those get melded together, and then again, the, the real strength of ARM is the software ecosystem. Software developers, middleware developers who are writing all this software for a common platform, this is what the automobile industry wants. So I think 
the autonomous not only leverage itself interesting in terms of automotive, but to other areas such as robotics, which I think with AI are going to be a very, very large market going forward. I think the robotics market in terms of large language models programming a ro robot in English and telling it what to go off and do is it going to be a reality in the next number of years. That leverages very heavily from the work that we do around autonomous driving. On, on China, uh, geopolitics, you get still about 25% of your revenues yep. at arm from that market. How do you ensure you continue to get market access, protect your intellectual property in that market, and don't run afoul of those restrictions from the US? It feels and sounds like a very fine line to walk. Yeah, so I, I think like most tech CEOs, we all uh, run very fine lines these days. Uh, I think CEOs uh, 10 years ago uh, did not talk to government officials with nearly the frequency that we do today. So uh, we comply with all the export controls, whether it's from the U.S. or other, other parts of the world. China is a big market for us, as you said, about 20 to 25 percent today. China looks like the rest of the world, though, in terms of the ecosystems they build, the software that runs on the processors and the markets that they want to address. So the big markets that are going for us in China, unsurprisingly, are cloud and automotive. Uh, automotive and EVs are growing very, very fast in China. You just have to travel to China. Uh, I was there for the first time in four or five years uh, back in the spring. Was amazed how, A, how many Chinese branded automobiles we saw and then how many were, were EV. Most of those today run on ARM. Uh, similar to the cloud data center, uh, the large players there, the 10 cents to bite dances. And the reason for that is that the software ecosystem that runs in China is very similar to what runs in the rest of the world. And since ARM is so closely linked to what goes inside the software ecosystem in terms of what runs on our processors, it's natural that our China business would look a lot like the rest of the world, which it does. Mm. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. When, when it comes to the, I, I, guess, I guess the question around, I guess, there's a couple of questions around, around, around that picture on China. Um, the, the restrictions that are coming through from the US, clearly there's a concern that some of these technologies end up with these kind of dual use properties. How, how do you mitigate future additional restrictions being put in place from the US and other jurisdictions? How do you think about that? 
Well, it's a little hard to predict what's coming around the yeah. corner. Uh, where, where we tend to play is in the components to build up in a system on chip. Generally speaking, the restrictions that get put on ARM are either around companies that are on the entity list, and that's rather black and white. Mm -hmm. If the company's on the entity list, uh, then uh, the rules are very clear and simple in terms of how to comply and which we do. Now, it's interesting in those cases, because most of our products are not designed in the U.S., we actually don't get impacted quite as much uh, since most of our products are uh, non-U.S. Uh, non origin. Now, in the areas around corners where we might get impacted, Right now, what we've been seeing are things around performance thresholds and memory bandwidth. Uh, and again, in those areas where the restrictions are laid out, we will comply. Mm -hmm. But because we don't build a chip like an NVIDIA uh, H100 or an AMD uh, MI300 where the chip has to hurt, hit a certain spec, we do some of the underlying mm -hmm. technology. Uh, our products are really not impacted very much. We have a handful that are. Okay. I, I think it's fair to say that there is a bit of confusion from some as to the relationship between ARM, ARM China, and SoftBank. So can you just explain for us how that relationship looks? Sure. So ARM, ARM China is a joint venture that is 49% owned by ARM slash SoftBank and 51% owned by China investors. Mm. Uh, and there are a number of just private investors who are, who are ownership in that, in that stake. Uh, that joint venture has two primary objectives. One is, and that's the area that we care most about, is the reseller of ARM technology into China. So ARM China is the exclusive distributor, if you will, of all the technology that ARM has to companies that are headquartered in the PRC. And in that model, it works very closely the way a distributor would look. Uh, they sell the product, mm -hmm. we deliver the product to the end customer, so if no IP goes into the joint venture, it actually goes from ARM UK uh, into the, the China partner. And then in a classic distributor relationship, they will pay us a certain uh, portion of the, of the dollars back. That's very simply in terms of how that portion of the business works. That's the part that's about 20 to 25% of our revenue. That's the part of the business that, that we and I care about the most. The other charter of Arm China is to be a, uh, essentially an independent entity to develop products for the China market. Now, they can develop products that are based on ARM, or they can develop products that are independent. They can do their own controllers or display, et cetera, et cetera. For that portion of the business, we really have nothing to do with it. They are uh, free and clear to develop what they want. We have some guidelines in terms of product roadmap. Uh, I happen to sit on the board of, of that uh, joint venture, so I, I wear two hats. I see what's going on with that side of the house. But that's essentially the model. Mm. Uh, so as it applies to SoftBank, that 49% that's owned by SoftBank and ARM, 95% uh, is SoftBank owned, 5% is ARM owned, but from a revenue standpoint, all the revenue consolidates back into ARM. There's no revenue into SoftBank. Okay. Uh, very, very, very simplistically, revenue for ARM comes from license fees and royalties. That's right. and, and pricing has, has gone up. We, we know that. Um, have, you, have you faced pushback from, from some of your major clients and customers on this? How, what is the willingness to absorb those higher prices and the prices continue uh, to rise? You know, one of the things that we needed to do when we created uh, these new product lines uh, around uh, the cloud mm -hmm. and, uh, and automotive was also reevaluate uh, the business structure and business models uh, because the, the value proposition of a server-based core is very different than the value proposition of a small core going into a security camera. 
So the changes that we made around pricing were we have very specific royalty rates that exist for uh, the server market we have very, and the server products. Mm -hmm. We have very specific uh, royalty rates for the automotive product, products that go in the automotive market. And now we are also building something that we call compute subsystems, where we take these independent components of, a, of IP and then deliver them as a full finished solution. Uh, so the way to think about it, the analogy I, I like to talk about is, is Legos. So if you think about our products as Lego blocks uh, and you put them together maybe to build Big Ben, uh, we'll now sell you the entire Big Ben kit. Mm. So when you put it all together, it'll look just like Big Ben. The benefit to that being, well, I can build Big Ben a lot faster if all the parts just fit. And that's huge benefit to, uh, to the end customer. And if you go to the Lego store, uh, the Big Ben kit probably costs a little bit more uh, than the separate Lego blocks. But that's essentially where we've gone in pricing. Uh, we've increased the, the pricing or changed the pricing around the Neoverse and automotive products. And then these new subsystems have different uh, pricing as well. And that's primarily around the royalties. Okay. No, I love the Big Ben analogy. <laughs> I love the Big Ben analogy. In, it, it is becoming more challenging, more complex to deliver these solutions. So is it fair to assume that those price rises will, will, will continue or, or do, you, do you see them peaking? I see the pricing. It's, just a, it's a different model altogether. Yeah. And again, going back to the, to the Big Ben model, the, the benefit is, is twofold for the end customer. One is their design time shrinks. Mm. Uh, what may have, we had one customer say that you have basically uh, taken off 80 man years uh, of, of design by, by doing this. Uh, or where it may have taken them two years to develop the product after we deliver the initial Lego blocks, in the Big Ben model, it gets down to 13 months. That's huge savings mm. for, a, for a company in terms of entering the market. The other driver behind that is the processing cycle times to build the chips. So when we deliver IP to a customer, they then need to put together in their SOC and then essentially send it to a fab to be taped out. Uh, from the time that they deliver their uh, netlist or their file to the fab to the time their chips come back, 16 to 18 weeks. As you get down to smaller transistor geometry sizes from 5 nanometer to 3 to 2, those 16 to 18 weeks go from 26 to 28 weeks. So the partners come back to us and say, Arm, can you please deliver the product to us eight weeks sooner? It's far easier for us to deliver the subsystem and save them the eight weeks than deliver them the individual solution. Mm -hmm. So combination of cycle times uh, being much longer to build the product and design cycle times taking longer, there's a lot of value that we bring in terms of uh, the overall solution. So. Uh, Customer may come back and say, well, your prices went up. I like to think that, well, actually, the value that we deliver has gone up. I've actually saved you a lot of money uh, by delivering the product the way we're now delivering it to you. When it comes to competition, a couple of the analysts and others have focused a lot on, on Risk Five, mm -hmm. so the open source platform for, for building out and designing processes. How, how do you see Risk Five evolving in the years ahead? How much of a threat could that be? In, in the future, if not now. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, we ch chatted earlier about ARM's yeah. a 33-year-old company. And uh, in those 33 years, one of the things that we've done an amazing job of is building a software ecosystem like no other. Uh, 15 million developers, 10 million apps that are, that are all tuned and run on ARM. Uh, the power of any CPU is in the software. Uh, lots of CPUs and come have gone uh, over, the, over the years and decades but it's really the software ecosystem. It's running iOS, it's running Android, it's running Linux. And it's not just running the software. 
it's knowing that the app is going to work the first time, it's not going to be buggy, it's going to be the best performance. That takes decades to, to create, and that's why there's very few companies that, that build microprocessors today. So when people ask me about RISC-V, I think for certain applications where a software ecosystem is not uh, critical, uh, RISC-V may be an okay solution. Hmm. But where the software ecosystem really, really matters, uh, I think it's going to take uh, some time for RISC-V to be a, a viable option. And, and you touched on this, um, the relatively new product from, from ARM, which is ARM Total Design, so that kind of end-to-end -end chip development mm -hmm. that you guys have, have laid out and pushed out. Has there been any reaction from, from big clients and big customers to that? Like, I'm thinking Qualcomm, are they, you could be eating their lunch with this kind of end-to-end <laughs> service and offering. It varies. If, yeah. you're, if you're a system company and your core business is not assembling chips, you look at this product offering and you can't get enough of it. Uh, automotive OEMs, mm. cloud data center OEMs, wireless base station OEMs, even mobile phone OEMs. Now, when you go one layer down to people whose end business are making chips, is there some tension in the discussion relative to, hey, that's the kind of thing that, that I used to do? Uh, initially, yes. But even now across some of the more uh, hardcore areas of even the mobile, mobile design sector, we're seeing people move to this. And it's largely to the reasons I gave you earlier. These products are really complicated to build. They take a long time to have manufactured. Yet every February at Mobile World Congress, the new phone has to be there. And uh, as those pressures mount on the design and manufacturing, it's an opportunity for ARM to, uh, to deliver more. I want to talk a little bit about ARM's place in the UK. ARM is conceived, of course, here in Cambridge in the UK. It's now obviously majority owned by a Japanese company, SoftBank listed in the US. What role do you see the UK playing for ARM in the years ahead? Uh, the UK is our home. Uh, it's our headquarters, it's where we were born, and we're always going to be here. So the UK is incredibly central to the future of ARM in so many ways. Uh, we've had fantastic cooperation uh, in the two years or so that I've become the CEO from, uh, from the UK government. Mm. Uh, we've had lots and lots of interaction with them. I have personally. They've looked for lots of different ways to, to help us grow, whether it's around fast track for talent and such. Because again, that's probably our, our biggest bottleneck for growth is just getting talent in. Uh, but we are very, very committed to, to the UK. Uh, and again, the UK is going to be so critical for our future. And, and the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, they want to create, they want to turn the UK into the next Silicon Valley. Is that realistic, Rene? Really? <laughs> There's only one Silicon Valley, right? Mm. It's, a, it's a unique area in terms of its ecosystem, the universities, and how the whole, uh, how the whole section works. Does that mean that can't be uh, imitated or uh, replicated on some level in other parts of the world? No, not at all. And I think the government here has been doing a fantastic job uh, around that. And Cambridge itself is a very, very rich community of uh, small companies, incubators, the universities. There's a lot of uh, uh, former ARM employees who are involved in startups here in the community. So I think, I think the, uh, Cambridge in particular, and also other parts of the UK, including Bristol, are very rich for, uh, for innovation. What, what, what do you think the government, today's government, but previous governments as well, have done wrong in terms of failing to attract tech companies to actually list here in the UK? Or is it that New York just has this gravitational pull that just can't be beaten? I'm not a financial guy, I'm, a, I'm an engineer, yeah. uh, so I'll kind of give you just my, my layman's uh, thought around that. I think the capital markets and, and scale, I guess maybe speak about the ARM, mm. uh, our, own, our own case, 
very large capital market. Uh, the access to capital was very large in New York. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons that uh, that really drove that uh, in, in our case. But I think broadly back to what really matters for Arm and myself is attracting world-class engineers. And the UK has always been a fantastic place for R&D and innovation. And, and I think it will continue to be that way. Okay. Um, you've been meeting, you meet with regulators, you meet with lawmakers, of course, around the world. Have you been meeting with members of the Labour opposition party? And if so, what has your message been to them? I have not. Yeah. So, okay. so, so far, not yet. Okay. If they would, look, the polls have the Labour party in a 20 point lead. There's a very good chance that they could be in government in 12 months time or, or less. Yeah. Often governments set themselves 100 days in terms of to achieve big things in their first 100 days. What would you say to any incoming government, whether it's the Conservative government or a Labour Party government, that you would want to see happen in those first 100 days yeah, for I'll, your sector? Yeah, specifically for, for ARM, yeah. uh, as we talked about earlier, we're very committed to the UK. Uh, this is our home. We were born here. We intend to stay here. Uh, please make it very easy for us to attract world-class talent and uh, attract engineers to come work for ARM because that is the single largest limiter that we will have for growth is, uh, is access to talent. And if that gets any more difficult uh, with uh, a, a change in government that you described uh, mm. with, the, with the next election, that would be a headwind I would, want to, uh, would not want to have to, to engage on. So I would say my first message would be uh, please make it easy for us to bring people in uh, and hire, and if you can make it even easier, even better. You touched on Cambridge. This is my last one on the UK, but you touched on Cambridge, and there is a real and thriving tech ecosystem mm -hmm. here, and ARM is a big reason for that. It's been a major catalyst. But there's also been concerns about planning restrictions, nimbyism, not in my backyard, the inability for some of these companies, I don't know if ARM falls into this category, to build out their facilities here because of some of those issues. I just wonder, is Cambridge symptomatic of the UK's problems in terms of not being able to drive that growth because of things like planning constraints, because of nimbyism. Do you think there's that I, issue? I, Do you think I, that's fair? I don't know. I mm. personally have not felt that. Uh, you're sitting here in a brand new, very large campus uh, that True. we built uh, three or four years ago that we just moved into. Uh, four buildings, A, B, C, and D. If you notice when you came in, there's some construction mm -hmm. going on with, with E and F. Uh, so for us, you know, that, uh, we want to hopefully be able to take advantage of that space. I think that's also a little bit of transition because a lot of things got quite disrupted with, with COVID in terms of people coming back into the office and did you need all this office space and, and do people work from home? Uh, for the kind of work we do, particularly around engineering, I think it's very important for people to be in the office uh, at least a good portion of the time. Because uh, one of the things that when you develop the kind of complex products that, that we are, two areas that are very, very critical in terms of uh, people being physically together. One is the, the conception of a product, brand new ideas. That's very hard to do uh, in your living room on a Zoom call. And then on the flip side, as you're trying to get the product out the door and you've got bugs, bugs and issues and you're trying to triage them, uh, again, having people physically in the building. So we were a little bit empty uh, during COVID. Uh, now we've got you know, a lot of people back in the office at least uh, three days a week or three and a half days a week. Uh, so and probably 75% of the people. So this new space that we're building, I think we'll be able to put it to good use. But I do think also during COVID, uh, back to your nimbyism mm -hmm. and expansion, I think some of those things got a little bit derailed because people were trying to figure out what is the new normal in terms of office space. And you think hybrid is probably gonna be the new normal? going forward or do you want to see people back full-time 
I, you know, I, I don't know that we, I, I, let me say it this way. Yeah. I'm not sure we were ever 100%. <laughs> there, were, there were always folks who found ways to, to kind of work around that. Mm -hmm. I'm most interested in productivity as opposed to a mandate that says you must be in five days a week, 8 a.m. on Monday, 5 p.m. on Friday. But on the flip side, I would not really want to go to a, a model that says everyone can work from home because I just don't think you get the best output. You don't solve problems the best way. You don't create uh, a sense of how to innovate the best way. And probably one of the most important things, we have a lot of young people in our company uh, who need to be mentored, taught, coached. Uh, that's a very hard thing to do remotely. So I'd like to see its majority back. I've got a last couple, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up and really appreciate your time, Rene. Uh, I want to loop it back to AI. Look, in your role, you have to be something of a futurist. It's essential to, to what you do at a company like Arm. So as you project out a decade, 10 years, a decade, how do you see generative AI reshaping our world? I think it will find its way into everything, uh, everything that we do and every aspect of how we work, live, play. Mm. Uh, I think we are on the cusp of something that we probably thought five, ten years ago was not in our lifetimes in terms of being able to have such significant impact, whether it's around productivity, whether it's around health. Uh, I think it's going to change everything over the next five to ten years. Is, really there, is there one part of that that most excites you in terms of what could change, what could be disrupted, what could come about as a result of generative AI that most excites you? I think health uh, is an area, whether it's around something as simple as your doctor visit or something as complicated as having a complete diagnostic map of what's right for your personal health situation, I think that's what excites me. Uh, because when I look at the health situation across either the UK or other parts of the world, not much has changed when I was 10 years old and I went to the doctor and a nurse saw me and then there was a clipboard, and there was a row of questions that were about as generic as can be. Uh, we were talking earlier about my, my new granddaughter, uh, and I see that her doctor visit looks just like my daughter's did uh, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, I think AI, just in terms of the capability of not only having the visits being more efficient and more productive, but more importantly, a real mapping of what exactly is your health history, what exactly is your DNA, what exactly are the foods that you've eaten for the last number of years, giving you the really correct level of diagnostic mapping in terms of what's right for you, I think the health area is, is an area of just unt untapped potential. And we've seen the debate around risks, risks around generative AI blow in, blow out into the open with, with what's happened with OpenAI and, and Sam Altman. Where do you land on this? I just wonder, is there an element of this story that keeps you up at night, that concerns you? What are you most worried about within the evolution of generative AI? Uh, that, the, that we lose control of the machines. I think to some extent, and the hows are still very much being debated, obviously, of having the fail-safe mechanisms in place that humans can override the systems. That is probably the single largest thing that I, I think and worry about, is that if the machines can be, or the algorithms, or whatever's being generated can be developed in such a way that there is no fail-safe mechanism, that it can be overridden by a human, uh, that's what worries me. Rene Haas, thank you very much indeed. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.